And we are continuing uh, a series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Adnan kicked it off last week, did an incredible job on how we approach this Gospel, how we read the Gospels in general. And we're we're looking at the first two characters that Luke introduces us to in this Gospel. And it's not Jesus. uh, It's not Mary and Joseph. It's actually a couple that we only read about in this Gospel called Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now what's important uh, when we approach uh, the Gospels, which again Adnan went into so well last week, is that we are not coming to the Gospel and reading chapter 1. We're not coming at the beginning of a story. Actually, we are uh, reading the continuation of a story that has begun uh, through the Hebrew Bible, through the Old Testament, and through uh, the words of the prophets, the story of Israel that starts in Genesis and concludes in uh, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And when we come to every single gospel, we get a really clear indication as to what has come before is really, really important. If we look at the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, they start kind of either assuming you know what they're talking about or saying that this is really important. The references they make are really important. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Already you're introduced to this story, uh, this history that starts in Genesis. Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Um, Isaiah 61. Um, if you don't know who Isaiah is, like it's, it's assuming that Isaiah is a super important person and this, is, this gives weight to what I'm about to write if, if you're Mark. He's writing to saying, hey, Isaiah said this, and this is what's going to be the fulfillment of it. And then John, he actually starts his, his gospel with the exact same three words that the whole Hebrew Bible begins with, in the beginning. And what this is painting, this picture, this painting, is that what has come before this story that we read about, this biography, this gospel, uh, what has come before is super, super important. Even Luke, who, as Adnan shared last week, is the only non-Jewish uh, or Gentile writer of uh, Scripture, uh, this is really important. He's actually writing to a Greek as well, Theo- Theophilus. Uh, despite their, their own heritage, their own ancestry would have been removed from uh, the history of Israel, it's still really, really important. It's still really important to emphasize what's come before is really, uh, really important when it comes to understanding the story of Jesus. And we are going to go through this, this gospel the Gospel of Luke throughout this year, so we're going to take kind of a deep dive into this, this book. We're not going to go through it kind of all in one go. We're going to break it up over the year into three or four parts and have other sort of smaller series as well. But my heart and my hope is that we really both get an understanding of who Jesus is, what he has done, but also kind of increase our love and desire for Scripture because I hope like what we're going to go into today, we'll see that it's just so rich. There's so much we can glean from it. Um, it's actually designed to be read and reread over time. Like you'll come to a passage you've read a hundred times, read it again, and God will speak to you in a different way, or you'll learn something new. And so I'm hoping that we'll really that we'll re- this will really get into us over the course of this year. And uh, this story uh, with these characters, Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth, uh, the whole the whole thing is littered with imagery and um, kind of hints to what's come before the Old Testament. But I do just want to say, despite that introduction, if you've never read the Old Testament, if you don't understand the story or you don't understand some of the themes or or whatever, that's totally fine. You can still read this gospel and it could still change your life. Um, Just to give you a kind of really slightly lame modern day example, uh, over the Christmas period, I often enjoy watching films. It's like one of my favorite things to do. Uh, This year was slightly different, having a nearly three-year-old in the house. It was kind of films more around kind of transportation that could talk. That was kind of the the breadth of the kind of films that I got to watch. Uh, However, uh, I did watch a couple of films that uh, Isaac would not 
be allowed to watch. Um, and one of them is called uh, The Tomorrow War. Has anyone seen The Tomorrow War? Oh, I love it. I love it. So this morning, so Matt, the only other person that's watched it is James Falks. And I just love that those two, I feel like I could have guessed if I could have guessed. I love it. Sorry. Thank you for that, Matt. I appreciate that. Um, don't watch it. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. It's, it's kind of, it's not great. Uh, and if you've watched a film kind of around the theme of like aliens coming to destroy the world, you've kind of seen it. It's a variation on a, on a theme. And this one, the premise is some kind of alien species is attacking the world, uh, and it, this is happening in 2050, and the people, the, the, the people fighting this battle have actually figured out time travel, Woohoo! as you do, uh, and have come back to present day to try to recruit fighters for this battle in 2050. That's the premise. Don't watch it. Um, and why is this relevant? Well, uh, I came home uh, one day, uh, we'd been, been out, I can't remember where, and uh, my brother-in-law was with us staying over Christmas, and he was watching this film, and he was about an hour through, and uh, I just sat down and watched it. Uh, and the, the point I'm making is that I understood the main point of the story. Humanity is in trouble. Aliens are trying to kill everyone. They need some kind of savior. I understood the story. But if I'd have read or, or watched the previous 50 minutes to an hour, the story would have been enriched. I would have understood some of the narrative or some of the story arc uh, more than I would have done by not watching the first part. But I could still watch it and enjoy it and get the thrust of the story. And it's kind of similar here with... The gospel. You may not know what's come before, or you may feel like you have an incomplete picture, or you find it hard to understand. Oh, that's totally fine. Uh, I feel like scripture is a, it's a lifelong pursuit to fully understand it, to learn more about it. Um, but if you haven't done that, or had the opportunity to do that, or you find it confusing, or scary, or whatever, that's totally fine. You can read this gospel, and you can just get so much from it. Although with this film, it's one of those things where you can kind of guess the setup as well. And I, for this talk, I just went back and just checked like to see if I, all my assumptions were right, and they were. Like you always get, there's some kind of really com convenient thing, like Chris Pratt's dad happened to have access to loads of guns and planes, which are just like, the dad's never like an accountant or like a pastor. You know, it's like, we need you to pray for the aliens. Um, but anyway, maybe one day. Maybe they'll make a film of me, who knows? Uh, but no, probably no, they'll make a film about Adnan, more, more likely. Um, so when we come to this gospel, uh, we can, whatever our experience, whatever we understand, whatever our knowledge about, uh, the story of what's come before, it doesn't matter. You can read this book and it can change your life. So we are going to read uh, quite a lot of the passage. Uh, we're going to start with just the first uh, three verses. Um, and we're going to read about these characters uh, that Luke introduces us to. So let's read and the words will be on the screen. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. It's Luke 1 from verse 5, by the way. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they, were, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So let's just pause here. Uh, Luke begins with this, with this introduction to these, these people, this couple, uh, and a few things to say. Firstly, uh, we find out some of their heritage, some of their ancestry. And we read that Zechariah is a priest. He is from the tribe of Levi, a very esteemed tribe in the nation and people of Israel. And we're told that Elizabeth is as well. She's a descendant of Aaron, the first priest. These people would have had respect because of their ancestry, because of their history, and their life would have been deeply rooted in that history. And we're also told that they're childless. Now, at that time, that would have been a, a source of shame. Uh, it wouldn't have just been this kind of longing that a couple would have had. It would actually have been a kind of cultural and social uh, kind of stigma that they would have carried because they hadn't been blessed with a child. Elizabeth goes on, and we'll read this uh, in just a moment. She goes on and describes it, her shame. Uh, or, sorry, her disgrace. 
Uh, and some of, some of the people at that time, they may have looked at this couple and thought that God is kind of giving them or, or judging them for who they are, what they've done, and are kind of restricting this blessing of children in their life. But Luke, I think, intentionally kind of counteracts this narrative and kind of brings, kind of turns this narrative on its head because we find a, another thing about this couple is that they are righteous. They are faithful. They are observing God's laws. They are righteous in sight of, uh, of God and observes his uh, commands and decrees. So Luke is already challenging this cultural narrative that because they had no children, because of their, the longings of their heart hadn't been met, that somehow God was absent or he was unhappy with them or that he didn't care. And we know that uh, this would have been uh, just a really deeply um, challenging thing for Zechariah and Elizabeth themselves. Uh, They would have been struggling with this and grappling with this, I'm sure. But we also know that the context of Israel at that time is that they believed God had been silent for 400 years. That was the the last time uh, a letter or a a book of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Malachi, uh, was written in the Old Testament. And I find it just really inspiring and remarkable Um, that the first introduction we get to these characters is that despite this kind of deep personal grief that they would have carried with them and the silence, the the apparent silence that they were experiencing and also the oppression of the Romans uh, on their their nation, on their people, they are still faithful to God. Like, that's the kind of people I want to be when I am older, faithful to God despite the circumstances, despite uh, what may look like uh, lack in their Life. They're still living a distinct and faithful life despite the silence and despite the temptation to assimilate to a culture that is more prominent than their own. Luke is introducing us to a very personal story. But he's also introducing us to this bigger, wider narrative at play. And just like a, in a reference from a film, this couple and this story is supposed to bring to mind something that has come before, a story that's actually greater than just this couple's situ- situation. And in this uh, moment, you may have uh, recognized this as you, as you heard, but Luke is actually wanting your memory to come alive through this passage. He's wanting you to think, we've heard something like this before. Because actually in Scripture, this story has happened before, through another couple, another older couple, who are faithful to God and childless. This is a story of Abraham and Sarah. And as we'll read about just a moment in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, they are promised a son, despite their old age, despite carrying uh, the, the kind of uh, cultural shame, but also personal longing for a child with them into old age. God promises them a son. So all the way back in Genesis, uh, in chapter tw- uh, 12, we're introduced to this character, Abraham. Uh, and despite uh, his old age and Sarah's old age, they are promised a son, and that through their son, uh, all of the peoples of the world will be blessed, that there will be a great nation that will come from their descendants. And the first uh, kind of 11 chapters of Genesis are God creating this incredible good creation for humanity to, to steward and care for and be fruitful in. And then we read just a load of stuff about the violence, the inclination to uh, want to abuse and selfishness and pride that we see in humanity, like it's, it's just littered with it. And then you get to chapter 12, which is the introduction to Abraham and Sarah. And the point of that is that God is starting his redemptive plan. He's starting to want to undo all of that sin, all of the violence, all of humanity's propensity to uh, do stuff to each other that is just terrible and awful. The way God begins his redemptive plan is through a couple who are faithful to God and who are childless. That is where he starts. And we have this moment again. Luke is wanting your memory to come 
alive. An elderly couple, unable to have children, yet promised a son. Something is happening here. If you were reading this at that time, uh, you'd be like, oh, this, what's going on? This is significant. So let's uh, keep reading the story. Uh, we're going to read from verse 8 over, uh, up to 25. That's what it says. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and are disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until that day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor favor, and taken away my disgrace among the people. So for Zechariah and Elizabeth, just like Abraham and Sarah, in the most unlikely of circumstances, God promises them a child and then fulfills that promise. And what's happening here is Luke is showing that this story that we're about to read, this biography of Jesus, this gospel uh, that he's about to write, is not just about fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling words of Isaiah who described what Jesus would do and, and, and what he would become and who he, who he was. But actually, this is the ultimate, complete redemption of the story of Israel. Abraham's descendants, they were not faithful to God. Uh, we read throughout the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah themselves um, were not faithful to God at times as well. And uh, most fully and completely, we read about the exile. People of Israel were exiled from their land and dispersed into other nations because they turned their back on God and worshipped created things and idols instead. And yet, once again, God is faithful to his promise to redeem, restore the world, restore what was broken, and take, uh, take the power away uh, that sin has on humanity. And it's through this introduction of this couple, through this story about this promise of a child, is meant to make us think something's happening here. God is on the move once again. Through how he works in these people, he is replaying and redeeming the narrative of Scripture through Jesus. And there are countless examples, well, there are not countless, but there's many, many examples of this throughout the gospel. Some things we even take for granted. For example, uh, one of the reasons, perhaps the, the main reason, I think it is the main reason why Jesus chose 12 disciples to follow him was because they reflected the 12 sons, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. 
They were supposed to reflect and redeem the story of those people. The reason he spent 40 days in the wilderness was to, was to match the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness before they reached the promised land. Jesus not only fulfills the prophecy uh, of, the t- of the prophets that say this is what he's going to be, the whole story is like a redemption, a replay uh, of the story of the Old Testament. And this is the first sign of that, the first sign uh, for the people of God to recognize God is, re- is redeeming. His, his plan for redemption is here and it's begun. It's going to be complete and fulfilled through Jesus. As, as Adnan said last week, that's what this word fulfilled means. He not only fulfills the prophecy, but he actually redeems and fulfills the story. So if we fast forward to verse 57, um, Lars next week will look at uh, what comes between. We get introduced to another character called Mary and Lars will speak, to her, uh, speak about her next week. But if we fast forward to verse 57, we have this birth of this promised son, uh, John, who'd become John the Baptist, come to be known as John the Baptist. And Zechariah, with his voice back and full of the Holy Spirit, prophesies this just incredibly beautiful poem. Uh, It's known as the Benedictus, uh, which is Latin for the first word uh, uh, in the poem praise. Uh, And this is what he says. It's just a, uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. He says this, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And we'll uh, get to another sermon soon on what John the Baptist goes on to do. But let's just look at this, this poem, this prophecy, and just uh, break it down just a little bit. Um, if, uh, for those, again, reading this at that time, if you were steeped in the story of Israel, you would recognize just the imagery that is littered, some obvious, some less so, littered with the story of Israel and the Old Testament. If we just go to the next slide, we'll see passage after passage, verse after verse, referencing or quoting directly passages from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. Uh, and Abraham, again, is just re-emphasizing this point. Sorry, Zechariah, again, is re-emphasizing this point. The redemption of Israel, the people of God, of humanity, is here. And interwoven in this poem are the kind of two major themes of the Old Testament, the two major events that define so much of what that book is about. Those two things being the Exodus, where the people of God were under slavery in Egypt, and an exile, where they were dispersed into foreign lands. And the very simplified kind of description of those two things is the, the Exodus is all about the stuff that happens to us, the evil, the injustice, the stuff that's happened to us that never should have happened, and how God can free us from that just like he did the people of Israel. And then the exile. The exile is the consequence of our sin, 
the consequence of us turning to things created or idols, things uh, that uh, are not God. There's these two grand narratives throughout the Old Testament. Exodus, the things done to us that should never have happened, and exile, the things that we have done and the consequences of our sin. And here, Zechariah kind of describes what Jesus will do uh, as, a res- as a response and in, as a way to fulfill and redeem either the things done to us or the things that we do ourselves. We read about mercy and rescue things that we need him to do, things that where we might find ourselves in a place where we're just enslaved to something, and then forgiveness and salvation, the stuff that we are responsible for, the consequences of our own sin, mercy and rescue, forgiveness and salvation, God's redemptive plan summed up in a poem. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is here, and he will be like the sun that shines in the darkness. Now, I know that can be a lot to take in. There's a lot of imagery here, and again, I just want to emphasize, like, don't worry if you don't know the full picture or the full story or you haven't referenced that. A lot of this I learned through preparing for this talk, just a complete uh, confession moment here. Uh, but it's just this beautiful tapestry of uh, what God has done and doing uh, in this story. Uh, but just like in The Tomorrow War, uh, we can come to this point, at this story, at this point, that film should never get a reference in the talk ever again. Uh, at this point... Uh, we can still understand, it's like, we can still understand the main story. We may not understand who Abraham was or what a horn of salvation is, but we probably know what darkness looks like or darkness feels like. And this is the point. Um, Jesus, what Jesus came to do was not just for the people of Israel, it was for all of humanity. And this was the start, this was the moment. And although this story, this, we're kind of get, getting a kind of picture of this grand narrative, uh, this is also a deeply personal story. This is just a story that would have, or an experience that would have changed in every way the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And you can hear it in the words that they share. When Elizabeth says that the Lord has done this for me, in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And maybe because um, our twins were born so recently, I just, I love how Zechariah prom- prophesies. And I kind of got this picture of him kind of look, holding his son, looking to the heavens, just saying all these amazing things of what God is going to do through Jesus. And then he comes to these four words, which just like broke my heart. And he looks at his son and says, and you, my child, just the most tender words of a, of a father. This was a deeply personal story. And it's a, a story that changes everything for everyone. It was a grand redemptive story at play, but it's also one for two very ordinary people uh, because that is how God works. He works through ordinary people like you and like me. So uh, how can we like, even think or begin to apply some of this or kind of integrate some of this into our life? What does it mean, um, particularly on the personal side of things? I mean, we can understand God's redemptive plan. We can kind of see that. But what about for us personally? And I'm sure many of us can resonate with uh, these longings, these uh, desires, or perhaps even uh, just regrets of missed opportunities uh, or grief that we, we carry, with, carry with us. We can all resonate with that, with how Zechariah and Elizabeth may have felt, things that we have longed for or have longed for that haven't come to pass. Now, what we can't take from this story, what we can't do is to say that because Zechariah and Elizabeth were blessed with a child, we will therefore get every desire of our heart. Like, that's just not how it works, and that would be wrong of me to, to, to say. But I think we can learn, firstly, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they trusted God despite a lifetime of longing and grief. 
and actually letting go of a longing as well. They would have probably just discounted the fact of ever having a child and not only would have had to have grieved um, not having a child, but also the hope of not having a child. They would have had to have given that to God, but they remain righteous before him because they trust him. They are faithful to him. They knew that he was faithful and they knew the covenant that he had made with his people and that one day he would fulfill it. And we know that from the reputation they had in Zechariah's prophecy that their lives, they were just deeply rooted in the story of God. They knew his promises and that far out, outplayed, outworked, than their, uh, or outweighed their own personal longings and desires. And that caused in them a life, a lifetime of faithful obedience. Now I'm not sure why some longings, some desires come to pass and why others don't. I don't know why some people are healed and some people aren't. I don't know why some people experience trauma and others don't. I don't know why some are blessed with children and others aren't. And I'm not going to tell you that all you need to do is this, these three steps and God will give you everything that you want. The fruit of that is a shallow, superficial faith and one that is open to manipulation and will end in disappointment or denial. If anyone says to you, do these three things and then God will do this, like, don't listen to it because it's just, it's, you're, you're being open to mani- manipulation if you do that. But how do we hold the tensions of our longings, the things that we want, the grief that we carry, um, the things that we desire God to do with faithfulness to God? How do we merge that? How do we hold the tension in balance of those things? And how do we become, like Elizabeth and Zechariah, people that are able to be obedient to God over a lifetime? And as I've been just thinking about this and praying, I mean, there's lots of things I could say there's a couple of things that particularly um, I was stirred about uh, in preparing for this and thinking about this. Um, and the first one uh, is just is perspective. And I mean this in kind of two senses. One is the perspective of our own story in light of Jesus and in light of God. But the other is just the perspective of time. And if we just look at the first one, um, I mean, Zechariah, you could tell he had a personal, loving relationship with God. He knew that he forgives our sins. Because of his tender mercy, our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on the darkness of those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, will guide our path into peace. And what I felt particularly, what we can so easily do in our life is we can isolate our own situation or what's going on in our own life. We can isolate ourselves from the story of Jesus, from what he has done and what he came to do. And for us as followers of Jesus, and this invitation is for anyone, the reason we can um, hold hope is because we integrate our life with him. We know that one day he will dry every tear. There'll be no more mourning, no more grief, no more dying, because we have aligned our hearts with him. We have hope in him, in his redemptive plan. But if we isolate ourselves from that, if we remove ourselves from that story, if we fail to see him for who he is and what he's done, that is where despair or cynicism or defeatism can come into play because without him, there is no hope. We have no place to put those longings. We have no place to, to express our, our, our grief or our, our hearts. So we've got to keep our perspective in the story of Jesus with what he has done, what he's done for us, uh, and just the, the reality that he loves us. And he's the best place to, to, to give all of these longings, all of these desires, all of these, these pains or griefs, all of that is, is safe with him. We can't isolate our, our story to his story. I know it's easy for me to say, and I realize in some ways it's kind of a cliche, but I mean it with all my heart. It's like trust in what Jesus has done. Trust, trust that his promises 
are greater. The forgiveness of our sins, his tender mercies, the light he gives to guide our path, they are greater and they are the greatest gift that we could ever ask or hope for. We are part of a bigger story than our own. And like with the people of Israel, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, our own histories, our own stories can be redeemed and restored. The wounds of our own past can be healed. And often they are the things that kind of speak to the world of what Jesus has done. They're the things that often, uh, so many stories of how people have had this addiction or this, this traumatic experience and seen God heal, be, heal them through it. And then that becomes the kind of story of their life. This the offering they give to the world because of what God has done through them in their life. But know that through Jesus, our, our history can be redeemed. The things that we're longing for are safe with him. Uh, our, our, our pain can be healed. Uh, the things we're enslaved to can be broken in him and our hopes for the future are safe in his hands. So perspective, keep your story in Jesus, but also perspective in, in a sense of time. Now what I love from this story is you get two old people that are just living a faithful life. And I, um, I've just got memories of uh, older people in my own, my, where I grew up, just, just incredible people. We'll never, no one would ever know their name other than the people that they met, but they were so faithful to God. Like they have done probably more in the kingdom of God than I will ever do, and yet they never had a platform. They never got to preach. Just faithful people who lived a life of obedience despite some of the, the hardest of things. I, I want to be like that when I'm 80, 90, whatever, however many years I have. I want to see myself or have a vision for my life where I am just obedient and faithful despite whatever life may bring. And for us, many of whom will have more years ahead of us than behind, like I just get hold of that vision of what that could look like. Like whatever achievements you make, whatever things you get to do, whatever things you see God do, like we, we just can't control that. Many of those things are out of our hands, but we can resolve to, to, to spend a lifetime of obedience and faithfulness to him. And I think with some things, when it comes to time and when you think about time, often the thing that we're going through right now is like the biggest thing in the world. And it's really hard to sort of break out and sort of look up and see your uh, situation in the perspective of time. And I've had experiences myself where uh, I've been going through something or I've been like gripped with something like, and it's like the biggest thing. Like I, can't, I can't get through it. And, and now I can look back with the perspective of time and know that that was like a, a chapter in my life. It had a beginning and an end. And I, I don't say, I say this with as much pastoral sensitivity as I can, but some of the things that you are going through right now, they, they will end. They will have an end point. They will become a story in your life that you can look back on and see that God has brought you through. So with the perspective of the story of Jesus, knowing that we're part of him, and with the perspective of time, I think we can um, make sure that these longings, these desires, they don't define us. They don't become the biggest thing in our life. And we can give them to Jesus and trust in his, in his wisdom and trust in him and that he's got our life uh, way more secure than we ever could on our own. So allow the story of Jesus to change your perspective. Um, Philip Yancey, uh, many of you all uh, know of or heard of him or read some of his books. He's a, a well-known journalist and author. Um, he spent his life kind of grappling with big questions of faith. Uh, and he recently uh, wrote his memoir called Where the Light Fell. And he talks about how he had this the most horrendous, difficult upbringing. Uh, he had, his father actually died because of some really abusive church leadership and theology uh, when he was a really young boy. Uh, and is then go on to be abused by his, uh, spiritually abused, particularly by his mother. Just the hardest story, hardest of upbringings. Uh, and as he reflected on his life, as through writing this memoir and seeing what God has done in and through it, 
and also just learning from people that he's encountered in his life as a journalist. Uh, he write, wrote, wrote these words. Something I've learned as a journalist after interviewing lots of people is this. Pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. So many people I've heard their story, and when a bad thing happens, or even my childhood, you want God to change it. You want God to reverse it, to bring my father back alive. But we don't really have the promise that he's going to do that every time. What we do have the promise of is from Romans 8, that no matter what the things are, and for Paul it was the prisons, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the snake bites, those things can be used by God with us to become the person he wants. At the end of the book, I really had no regrets. I felt nothing was wasted. Just revisiting my story, I didn't feel those flashes of anger again. They were healed. They were redeemed. And I hold that out just as hope for people listening. I think what Philip Yancey has is similar to what Zechariah and Elizabeth had, which was a life that was just at peace, that was just fully integrated uh, with the story of Jesus and his redemption. And um, again, I think that's just an inspiration for us when we think about the things that we go through learning from others who have kind of walked a similar path and know that, man, Jesus is so faithful. Jesus is so faithful despite the most difficult and traumatic of things. And um, the second thing I've just been thinking about a lot at the start of this year as well for us, um, which I think helps us when we think about the story and how it applies to us, is God's presence. Like just spending time with him, allowing him to heal us, allowing him to know that he is present with us. And actually the passage that Philip Yancey referenced, Romans 8, I'm just going to read it over us as kind of like a prayer because it talks about, he describes all of these difficult things that he goes through and he talks about how the pre presence of the Spirit is so important when, uh, in, in terms of how we get through those things. So I'm just going to read that over us. And I feel like um, this theme of seeking God's presence uh, or prayer, spending time with him, I think that's, that is like, I think that's a major theme for us right now as a community. Um, you probably don't know this, but actually this week was our seventh birthday. So we have now been in East London for seven years, which I feel like is a pretty significant moment for us. Last year, the start of last year, I preached um, a sermon, you, you all remember it, I'm sure, uh, on, um, on how uh, a pastor called Dave Lomas described often the first seven years of a, a church plant as uh, the kind of planting years. And for me, when I first heard that, I was like, oh man, that's a long time. And I've learned in ministry that like, things take a lot longer than you want them to. But he said this, the second seven years is all about growth. And I, that just really resonated with me when I read that, when I listened to that talk. It was maybe five, a few years ago now, and it's kind of stuck with me. We've now entered our seventh year, um, and I really feel like just through, you know, there's no like, perfect model, or there's no way to predict what a church can go through. And I, so I'm just going to, I had this, hold this with light hands. Uh, but I really feel there's something in that for us. Like we... Uh, end of last year, Adnan, Sarah and I, we finished this building. So every room now is open and available. And I just felt like, oh, that feels significant as well. Like we're, we're kind of done. It's like ready. It's here to be used by you and by the community. And uh, you might have dreams and, and visions like Joss did or things that you might want to see God do. Or we, we're here. Like this is us. We are planted in this community. We have this space to be used. But I feel like what's so integral to whatever we do here, whatever we do in this community like the presence of God is, has to be the, the center, has to be the engine. Praying, being in his presence, desiring his presence, seeing that as like an integral part of what we do together, like that, that is the engine room of whatever we're going to see happen. And we were praying before the service with the prayer team and some others, um, and I really felt like 
to use this analogy again of, of fruitfulness and, and a tree, but like God's presence it is the water. Like it is the water to any growth. If we want to see people come to faith, like we can't we can't do that. Like I can't do that. God does the work. And that that's the way it works. And so if we're not spending time in his presence and, and asking him, if we struggle to desire to pray or to desire to seek his presence, to ask him, give us the desire, uh, then I think I think we're gonna be lost. I feel like this is really important for us this year, spending time uh, seeking his presence together in this building, letting this, this building be like a house of prayer uh, for this area. Um, we've been given it. We've got three and a half years left. Let's use it. Let's le- see what God can do through it. But I feel like the presence of God is, is going to be the engine room. It's going to be the engine room for whatever uh, God does in and through us. But also, it is so important uh, when we th- process and think about those longings and desires that we have. Um, I've experienced that even just this week, like knowing, being in his presence and just everything gets put, put in perspective. Like, I, don't know how it, I don't know how he does it, but everything just feels smaller um, when you're in the presence of God, when you realize just the magnitude of who he is and what he can do and what he's done and how he sees you. Everything just feels smaller, every battle. So seek the presence of God and maybe the band want to come up and I'm just going to say this passage, Romans 8. Uh, I'm going to kind of almost like pray over us as a community. Um, and there might be things, verses in it that you think, what, what does that mean? Uh, or there might be things in it we think, wow, that really speaks to my situation. Um, I'm just going to kind of pray it over us uh, and then we'll just some worship some more. But um, yeah, why don't we stand and I'll read this passage over us. So Romans 8. And you might want to just close your eyes and see what God might stir in you. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Holy Spirit, I thank you that firstly we can even experience you, we can know you, we can pray to you. Lord, and I just pray that for anyone here who is just in the thick of pain or in the thick of like unfulfilled longing or have had to let go of a, of, a, of a desire or longing, whatever it might be Holy Spirit I just pray you'd intercede now in their lives and in their hearts 
would you show them the rising sun that removes all darkness and leads us into the path of peace. Thank you that those things that we carry, those scars, those limps, Lord, they can be, they can actually be a sign of your glory, a sign of your goodness to us. We can hold them out as hope to this world. You may not remove our pain, God, but you can redeem it. so much that you're with us. I thank you so much that you're in this place. And God, at the start of this year, at the start of this series, God, would you just up the, the temperature, the spiritual temperature of this community? Would you, would you increase your presence amongst us? Would you increase the desire for all of us to seek your face? Lord, would this, would this building be a house of prayer? this be a, a building where people come to know you for the first time? Would this be a place where people are healed, restored, redeemed, set free? Where the lonely find a family? into the path of peace.